0: We're covering Romans chapter 9. Verse 1 I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praise forever. Amen. Now it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father, Isaac. For though our, her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Yeah, I don't know. Thanks for coming. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I've never, I've never publicly taught Romans chapter nine through sixteen, or Revelation. Uh, I have taught Daniel chapter seven through twelve at Leavener, and uh, there's a reason for this. Uh, For years, there have been multiple interpretations of the Scripture in many many passages. It's a lot easier to interpret Scripture that is in the the past history and Scripture itself because we have history and Scripture can proof text it. You put the two and two together and it's easy. It makes sense. But what do you do with Scripture that deals with prophecy that occurs after the Scripture itself? Like the last book that we know, is Revelation. There's controversy whether it was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD or whether it was written after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So now you have controversy. You have two sides. This is the issue. And it has been debated and discussed for hundreds of years. In this very room right here, we have people that have different interpretations of the Scripture concerning prophetic issues. Have all the prophecies already been fulfilled? If not, what prophecies are yet to be fulfilled? Is knowing and understanding these passages of Scripture vital to our own spiritual life? Some will say yes, and some will say no, absolutely not. It's similar to what we're dealing with on an earthly sense. We have anti-vaxxers, and we have pro-vaxxers, and those in between, and what information are you listening to? Where are you getting your information from? Somebody just asked me last night if I had information for them on vaccination. I'm like, nope, not getting into that. Just not going to do it. But let me go back to the issue. It causes division because of opinions. Knowledge or even lack of knowledge. Commitment to understanding or lack of commitment to understanding. It can cause great division. Will the evil one. Did you do we lose me? Is it me or... Check one, two. It just died, didn't it? Yeah, we're in a battle. (laughs) Seems like every week, but... uh, The question is, I was getting ready to say, will the evil one use the Word of God to cause division in the church? Absolutely is correct. This is why we have denominations, and even these denominations become divided. They split over theology and controversies and actually putting the Word of God into practice. Uh, are, you, like, are you kidding me? Like there have been great wars throughout the years among God-fearing believers. For a long time. So now we come to the part of the text that stirs up so many questions predestination, foreknowledge, prophecies fulfilled, prophecies yet to be fulfilled, who's included in the covenants then and who's included in the covenants now, have the covenants been fulfilled, etc. All that is like in this passage of Scripture. And in this very room, we have very highly educated and knowledgeable students of God's Word, even greater than today's speaker. I know in Deuteronomy uh, 29-29, God says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. There's two facts that can be extracted from this verse, is that God possesses secret things that belong to Him alone. And then, God has also revealed certain things To men, I as a pastor teacher, there's nothing more exciting than to receive God's revelation over the word of God. I mean, to be able to sit here and to unpack it and to understand it and then be able to even teach it it, is a pretty exciting thing. But that whole world word mystery right there points to truth that God is in the process of revealing My prayer for myself, I don't know about you, but my prayer for myself is that to the dying day of myself is that God would continue to reveal His Word to me. That every day I'm maturing and growing in God's Word. And any theological position that elevates God's sovereignty above His love really takes away from His character because the Scripture itself, 1 John 4, 8, says God is love. God is love. Now, I get to the word sovereignty and uh, some will say, well, God's the ruler of this whole thing and He's in control and I absolutely believe that. I absolutely believe that. But I also believe the evil one has been given authority here on earth. And that so we face spiritual battles every day. I believe that. And so in saying that if you take the sovereignty of God and you put it above who I believe his true character is that is love. That's that's really if I get anything from this today it's like what is God's heart? I take this uh, I take the word I take the word of what I know and then I kind of formulate who I believe that God is and then I look at the word of God and say, how does this match who I believe that God is? How does this does this float through all 66 books? Now is God love? Absolutely God is love. But is God sovereign? Does he have the ability to come into play in everyday occurrences? Absolutely he does. But know this, in this room, we have people who barely know who Jesus is. So I've got the highly educated and those that are discussing theology and stuff, but I also have those that are just figuring out who Jesus is. Much less Paul and Romans and all those terms that we've tossed around in the previous statements about foreknowledge and prophecies and... So somewhere in the middle, we have to present a difficult passage of Scripture to a wide variety of listeners. And I will not go into great depths, but I will do a flyover and hopefully create opportunities for discussion outside of this gathering for further study by each of you. Now let's get into it. Uh, Verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul, he's a Jew, and passionately loved all Jews. Consequently, he could identify with the Old Testament and the writing prophets along with John the Baptist. He was in agreement with them. And these individuals literally risked their lives for the sake of the truth. Yet, there were few Jews that listened to their counsel. Sorrow filled the hearts. And that was a scenario of Paul's unceasing grief that he understood well. This next sentence is just amazing to me for... I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. I don't know if I could say that. That, That's, I mean, for you guys? <laughs> like, I'd just be separated from God for eternity? That's really what Paul's saying here is that he loves his nation so much, his people so much that he would do that. Now think about the audience that Paul's writing to. The audience is the church of Rome. But inside of this letter, Paul is rebutting Jewish unbelievers, those that have been, he's been going around talking and there's people that have been questioning what he's teaching and more directly so to the Pharisees. So at some point, at same point, he's talking to believers of Jesus, and other points, he's telling them about his discussions with non-believers of Jesus as the Messiah. So you you're getting mixed messages in this passage of scripture, but he literally continues to answer the questions that he brought up in Romans chapter three, verses one through eight, proving that in the process, a person's salvation is independent of any lineage or good works. It doesn't matter what lineage you come from or what works you do, but it's totally dependent on whether he's exercised their faith in Jesus Christ. That's me and you in this room as well. And Paul's going to allow himself to be cursed and cut off from Christ that He is that serious about wanting them to know the truth. Verse 4, it says, they are Israelites, they're Jews. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. I could spend weeks on that passage right there. You have to understand Jehovah God has blessed the Jewish nation beyond measure. First, they're Israelites. That they're physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The forefathers that everybody has put up on this pedestal. All the descendants belonging to a physical Israel. And then he says the adoption, he's talking about the adoption as sons. It does not communicate that all Jews are part of God's spiritual family. There's a physical family and there's a spiritual family. The physical nation of Israel was adopted as the national son of God, not the spiritual son of God. For them to become the spiritual son of God, it would literally require them to repent and have faith while they're in need, which... Only a small amount of Jews have exercised that. Therefore, the wife of Jehovah of God is Israel, whom literally he married at Mount Sinai. The bride of Christ that you hear about, that's, that's us. That's the church today. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles alike with no racial distinction there. And it was birthed in Acts chapter 2. So God married the nation of Israel, Mount Sinai. We are the bride of Christ as according to since Acts chapter 2. Israel, they also received the covenants and the giving of the law. One conditional covenant and four unconditional covenants. In the case of an unconditional covenant... The one initiating the covenant is responsible to fulfill the conditions prescribed in the covenant regardless of the recipient's response. Let me list them. I'm not going to break them down. You want to have a table discussion about these covenants, whether they've been fulfilled, not fulfilled, that's probably at a deeper discussion. But the conditional covenant The covenant of the law, the Ten Commandments, which is obviously found in Exodus chapter twenty, to the unconditional covenant of the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditional Palestinian covenant, the unconditional Davidic covenant, and the unconditional New Covenant. There's five covenants that have been made with the Israelites. Again. We could spend weeks talking about that and the variations and the beliefs of whether those have been fulfilled or not fulfilled. Verse 5, it says, the ancestors, ancestors are theirs, and from them by physical descent came the Christ. You know, in the, the Scripture, uh, the original text, there was no punctuation, so there's even like a question whether that is a comma or a period after came the Christ, but we won't go into that either. There's so much in here. Came the Christ, who is God overall, praise forever, amen. Paul sets out the problem that he's really dealing with in these chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Israel's been given all sorts of great opportunities and privileges by God, but still finds itself not saved as a whole. This discussion helps prove the fact that salvation is not based on lineage or good works. Simply, this is the discrepancy between promises and privileges God has given Israel and Israel's reality. You see, God chose Israel to be His people. He blessed them. He gave them wonderful things, and yet at the present time, as Paul looks at the situation in the early church, he finds very few Jews who are coming to Christ. God's done all this for him yet. So now we get to defining some of this, these definitions. Free will. I mean, talk about free will. Uh, Adam possessed the freedom to accept or reject God's love. Basically, to obey, disobey. He was in the garden, had a choice. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He had a choice. He chose to eat from the tree. His descendants, Adam's descendants, have had the same privilege for God's character prevents him from forcing his love on the unwilling. Hang on. Let me explain myself. And that even means that's why the cross was necessary like if he if he just forced himself on people there was no need for jesus to go to the cross i, I go you go back to uh, salvation when when was when did salvation come about you have to go back to genesis chapter 3 verse 15 this is like the third chapter into the bible after they had sinned in the garden. He said, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the very first, very first passage of Scripture in the Bible that says there's a Messiah that's coming. There's a Messiah that's coming. Jesus would bruise Satan's head and remove Satan's authority through allowing Satan to bruise his heel, which was the crucifixion on the cross. He submitted himself on the cross because Satan had literally gained dominion over the earth through Adam's sin. This is my belief. People perish only because they reject God's plan or purpose. The reality is sovereignty at its best for the God of scriptures who can accomplish his goals with man possessing the freedom of choice is much greater than a God who must program man's every move to accomplish the same. Like, God could be making us robots and making us do everything or he allows us to live in free will and to have a choice. To me, that is free will. I am able to make decisions right now. God is not forcing me to love him. He did not make me to automatically love him. I chose to love him. When I chose to love him at age eight, I really didn't understand all that meant that He gave me faith, that He gave me repentance, that He did all these things, that He took my old heart out, that He gave me a new heart. It was my simple initial belief in Jesus as the Messiah. I did it. From there on, He's done it in me. All I did was believe. But I had the free will and the opportunity to believe. And these three chapters... Paul's basically addresses how the remnant of believers within the physical nation of Israel relates to both the national Israel and the church. Look look in verse 6. Now it is not as though the word of God has failed because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Paul's literally saying right here, uh, there's two Israels in a sense. Not all who belong to Israel are Israel. There's what you might call the physical... Israel, as opposed to the spiritual Israel. Watch this. Abraham had two sons. Only one of them inherited. Isaac only had two sons. But only one of those, Jacob, not Esau, inherited. And so on down through history of Israel, there has, in other words, been a selection process going on with physical Israel. I believe that Jews misunderstood God's purpose for their nation. They were not chosen to be saved as they incorrectly assumed. God, they, Jews believed that they were all going to be saved. They were chosen for a very special office of bearing the Father's Son and taking the news of His coming to the Gentiles. This was their Opportunity. Israel was not chosen to be saved but to function and to serve in an extraordinary office. She was a chosen as a kingdom of priests that it says in Exodus chapter 19 for literally the purpose of taking the law and the message of the coming Messiah to the Gentile nations. It's going to come through the Jews. Jews alone received the Ten Commandments, the truth that they were to take to the nations. The Jews also received revelation of the coming Messiah through the passages in Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah came as a prophet to the Jews to take the message you know and, in, and instead of and instead of just spreading this exciting good news they honestly blaspheme God's name through disobedience and because God's limitless here's a here's a a word for you foreknowledge foreknowledge allow him to foresee Israel's negative response to his truth He spoke through the prophet Isaiah around 700 B.C., how Jesus would be the light to the nations and the Gentiles, be their hope. Now, I use the term foreknowledge. Let me kind of explain explain it like this. The moment that I believed that when I was eight years old, I was in Christ, and Christ was in me. That took me all the way back to eternity past. That took me all the way back to Calvary. Galatians says that I was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the moment that I believed, I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ forever, eternity past, eternity future. I think one of the biggest problems that we have here in this room is we have this timeline. We have this timeline of time. Of time. <laughs> Like, God is here right now, right? And God is here right now, right? But He's still back there the first time I said it. Let that sit with you for a second. There is no timeline for Him. And so, because I'm in Christ, I've always been in Christ. Eternity past, eternity future. He knew from the very beginning that I was going to be in Christ because of the belief that I made. To me, that is his foreknowledge. He knows all along before you are ever here on earth who is going to choose to follow him. Verse 7 says this, Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For through her sons had not been born yet, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls she was told the older will serve the younger. Let me break this down. The blessings that were promised to Abraham which came to full fruition through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, were passed down through Isaac. You know that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. It came through Abraham's son through Sarah, not through Ishmael. Abraham's son through Hagar, that was Ishmael. The son of The flesh versus Isaac, the son of faith. Having, like, you realize that as they got older, they said, We've got to help God make this prophecy happen. So he slept with Hagar, and he did that in his own strength, which would be in his own flesh, the son of flesh. Yet God said, No, you'll have a son through Sarah. His name was Isaac, which meant laughter because he, they had him in such an old age. But this is who the blessing is going to come from. It's going to come from Abraham and Sarah through Isaac. The blessings of Abraham associated with the coming Messiah that they had all been looking for were also passed down through Jacob, Isaac's son, through Rebekah not Esau, his twin brother. You remember the story of Esau and Jacob, their twins, Esau coming out first, Jacob coming out holding his heel. Jacob came out second. But Jacob kind of twisted things with the help of his mother Rebekah and for a bowl of soup got a birthright and then basically deceived his father to receive the blessing. You need to understand something here. None of these passages here teach that God detested or despised either Ishmael or Esau in those passages there. He didn't. In fact, God greatly blessed Ishmael according to Genesis chapter 17, verse 20. God chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over. Over Esau, for the purpose of bringing the seed of Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, the Messiah Jesus Christ, into the world that's who he chose he didn't this was not about salvation. this is who the seed is coming through. thus God chose to bless the world through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a choice that in no way affected the eternal destiny of Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, or Esau. It didn't. In each case, uh, where they were going to end up, the eternal blood was based upon whether they accepted or rejected the seed of Genesis chapter 3, who eventually was Jesus Christ. This truth is foundational if we're going to like interpret the rest of these chapters. And then... Uh, we get to this next verse. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Did God really hate Esau? Never granting him the opportunity to be saved? And you get further passages. Was Pharaoh's heart hardened by God? That's like coming next week. Did he harden God's pharaoh's heart to prevent him from believing did God prepare vessels of wrath verse twenty two on which to display his wrath, never granting these individuals freedom to exercise their faith in christ did, now now you're questioning the heart of my God how does this how does this translate if God is love the and I, I believe if you if you answer those questions with an affirmative, that then you're putting God's sovereignty over His love. And, and, and in fact, right there, uh, according to that view, God must cause cause all things if He's to maintain His rightful position as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And therefore, everything that's done, all events are a direct result of God's will. Making this whole war between Satan and God worthless. If, I mean, think about that for a second. If God's directing everything and He's created evil, He's, he's made this a drama Man, there's actually no war at all. It's just God stirring all this up. To me, that doesn't even make sense. Should God be the cause of Satan's every move? The war between Satan and man would obviously be bogus. For for man's response to Satan's schemes, either good or bad, would not only be a result of God's doing, but also God's will. That's a tough one to swallow. And for God to hold man responsible for sin He has caused and willed, would I just can't see it. Should God cause and will all things, He would will and cause everything that occurs. Think about it. All sickness, misfortune, calamity, and hardship be the source of all evil. Where man spends eternity would also be God's choice, never man's. To me, it is hard to explain, but I believe that God created the heavens and the earth and He put everything into motion and it was perfect. It was perfect. He gave Adam and Eve one choice They made a selfish choice. Death entered into the world. Sin entered into the world. Satan had authority here on the earth, and now we're dealing with it. All the sadness in this room. How do you explain the sadness in this room? Did God do that? Or did He do that because He gave us free will? And if there's goodness, then obviously there's evil. It's tough. I go back to, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, it said, Esau had held a grudge against Jacob, and because of the blessing his father had given him, and Esau determined in his heart. like Esau made the choice in his own heart. He said, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. The whole word hate in this scripture right here, that's the one that you struggle with. Did God hate Esau? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? You go back to the original Hebrew text and the word is "maseo." it ranges in meaning from anywhere from disfavor to dis- detest some even define hate here as love less i love esau less than i love jacob the new living translate well its translation it says use the word rejected all the other translation used hate how do i How do I take that passage of scripture right there and justify that my God is love? I wish I had all the answers. I wish I had all the answers some sure some in this room are saying, "I've got the answers yeah uh, I know this for sure is that God is love. And we're sitting here going through this stuff and Paul's literally saying to, trying to explain, my Israelites have been given a lot. God has chosen them for specific roles. They're making their own choices. They're free to make their own choices. And this is how it's going to play out. This is how it's playing out. It's all coming down to your faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. I'm going to try to get through chapter nine next week. Uh, my my only thing about teaching this, I don't mind teaching it because it's obviously going to create discussion all week long. I get it. Uh, my thing is like, how how do you continue to teach identity and grace and? The things that you need to hear on a daily basis. You need to hear. That's where my real heart is. But I'm not going to avoid the Scripture because we're teaching through the Scripture either. So just continue to pray with me as we go through this thing. Father, um, thanks for today. Just thanks for Your Word. Help us to continue to discern it, to understand it. And mainly just for you to live through us. I'm more concerned about uh, how you're working through me than what's going to happen in the future. I just trust that you'll do the same with our people here today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.